Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 14. We're going to read verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. This morning was the official public launch of our Fishers campus, and uh, right now they're meeting um, in that uh, section of our city. As we go to prayer this morning, I want to pray that they will be greatly encouraged and that we'll be able to reach that section of the city and then other sections of the city. So join with me, please, as we pray. Father, we thank you that this very moment there are hundreds of people gathered at our Fishers campus, and we thank you just for the outpouring of people that have left this campus at North Indy and have gone there and who have begun to invite their neighbors to come to church with them. We thank you for the grace that you're bringing um, through those people there, and we pray that your word would go forth in that location, as it will in other Bible-preaching churches in that city. And we ask you to give us a vision for how to reach the entire city of Indianapolis with the gospel. We think of other communities like Greenwood and Brownsburg, Avon, and the central part of our city. We have a vision for those areas, and we want to see you do great things in Fishers so that we can multiply your efforts um, around this city. So God, now help us as we study a very important and yet challenging passage in your word. Give us discernment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The heart of Romans 14 and 15 is to help us understand that there's all kinds of tensions in life that we're going to deal with between essentials and non-essential issues. There are people in this church who believe one thing and there are people in this church who believe another thing in regards to what they do and the privacy of their homes and what kind of entertainment choices they have, what type of um, educational choice they have for their children, and in the midst of all of those things, the Bible calls us to have unity in the midst of our diversity. Um, a well-known statement goes like this, in essentials, unity, 
in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. The mantra behind this statement is simply that while we deal with these regular and continual tensions between essentials and non-essentials, that we recognize that there's a hierarchy, a hierarchy of things that we need to embrace together because they are the essentials of the faith, and then there are things that are non-essentials that we need to give grace to one another in, and in the midst of that, we, we wrap all of that together with grace and love and affection for each other. Now last week we jumped into this section of scripture. A number of you weren't here because of the holiday weekend. And I wanna be very specific about some of the things that we're talking about. I I listed um, some things that people within our church disagree on. Here was that list. Politics, dating, education choices, alcohol use, worship styles, clothing choices, smoking, movies, dancing, tattoos, divorce and remarriage, moms working outside the home, gambling, fertility, contraception. I could go on and on and on, but that's enough tension already for this morning, all right? (laughs) Now, after last week's message, I heard from a number of you via email or things that you posted online or Twitter or things of that sort, and um, I'm really encouraged with what I'm seeing in terms of the discussions that you're having within your small groups and between your friends, because I'm sure that you have seen, as I have, that these issues can easily divide the church. We've seen, I've seen it happen way too often where friendships are divided, churches are divided, division takes root, people feel like they're being judged in the exercise of their Christian liberty. And Romans 14 and 15 helps us to really think about how do we practically live with one another when there are so many differences of opinion. Now last week we talked about what it means to welcome one another. There are two principles in these texts, chapter 14 and also chapter 15. The first principle that we looked at last week was we're to welcome one another despite our disagreements. The target of Romans 14 is to get us to Romans 15 where Paul envisions the church being full of harmony despite of her differences, who with one voice glorify God. So the beautiful vision of the church is people who agree in the essentials and on the non-essentials love one another more than they disagree with each other. That's the vision. The problem in Romans 14 was specifically related to someone that Paul calls a weaker brother, and that weaker brother was and this is important, likely a recent convert as a Jew came to faith, became a Christian, and he was having a hard time, this weaker brother or these weaker brothers were having a hard time letting emotionally go of previous standards that had been so vital to their faith as it related to what they ate, what they drank, or the days or the festivals that they celebrated. So he'd come out of a background where those things, eating, drinking, and celebration of days, really marked him as a follower of God. And now that he became a Christian, to let go of those things was was challenging. And the effect of this was that the church could easily be divided as the non-meat eaters judged those who were meat eaters, like they were somehow worldly, or the non-meat eaters, or rather the meat eaters, disdained the non-meat eaters because they were too conservative, they were old-fashioned. 
And in the midst of all this, Paul says, look, we're to welcome one another. Then I also cautioned you last week that be careful. I've seen the terms weaker brother or stronger used, or brother used way too loosely. Sometimes people use that uh, weaker brother just to mean someone who's more conservative than they are, and they think they're stronger just because they have more freedoms. That's not, not really what Paul necessarily had in mind in Romans 14. As also, as well, I've seen stumbling blocks used to be applied to all sorts of things that the Bible really didn't intend the term stumbling block to really apply with. So the hard part about Romans 14 is this. You gotta get very specific as to what Paul has in mind. Limit weaker and stronger brother definitions and limit stumbling block definitions to what Paul is talking about. And then secondly, figure out the principles that led him there because those principles do apply in other situations that are not related to weaker or stronger brother issues or stumbling block issues per se. So there's two things that we have to deal with at the same time. Number one, what is technically a stumbling block issue? Who is technically a weaker brother? And when would it be sin for you to treat them in a way that doesn't fit with Romans 14? And then what are the wisdom points that in light of the tone and the heart behind Romans 14, do we also need to treat one another differently, but it's not technically a Romans 14 issue? So that's the challenge. And if you're hoping that by the time you leave here, I will solve all of your questions, you will be terribly disappointed. Because the reality is this passage calls you to think. It calls you to work it out. It causes you to have to sweat the details and to pray and evaluate. What, what am I gonna do with this and how do we navigate through these waters? Now, to try and help you with that thinking, last week I gave this paradigm which identifies that all truth is not exactly the same. There are some things that are absolutes. There are some things that are convictions and some things that are preferences. Absolutes are the things that define what it means to be a Christian. If you don't believe in the absolutes, you're not a Christian. It could be a theological issue, it could also be a moral issue. Uh, for instance, if, um, if you don't believe that immorality is wrong and you think you can just be immoral your entire life, well then you're not a Christian, according to Galatians chapter five. That's, that's the point. So there's absolutes, there's convictions, and then there's preferences. Convictions are things that relate to um, how you see the scriptures to teach. A strongly held conviction could be part of a church's doctrinal statement or a loosely held conviction, you see how the Bible teaches it in this way and so you apply it that way. Might not be part of a doctrinal statement, but might be part of the way that you uh, wanna raise your family and, and, and a, uh, something that you hold dear, but not the same as though it's an absolute. And then a preference is just the way that you work out a principle in your life. The reason that chart is helpful is because it helps us to see that legalism is taking a preference and making it an absolute whereas liberalism is taking an absolute and making it a preference. It's important to understand the difference. Now, last week, I don't know that I helped you fully understand the difference between a conviction and a preference. In fact, a number of you asked me, how do I navigate through this? The key is understanding your emotional connection to the issue that you have, and that you don't treat something emotionally like it's an absolute when it's really a preference. You don't treat something emotionally like it's a preference when it really should be an absolute. So as I thought this through pastorally, here's a couple questions that I ask myself when I'm dealing with where is this issue, where does it fall in this particular paradigm? Here's some questions I ask. Number one, does, it, does this issue determine if someone is a Christian or not? If it, if it does, then clearly it's an absolute. Secondly, is this a clearly forbidden or commanded moral issue? And if so, it's an absolute. 
Third, does the Bible provide teaching or instruction on this issue? Now we're getting into conviction. Four, are there warnings and cautions? We're getting further out from convictions. Are there biblical principles that apply in convictions? Number six, are there contextual or cultural issues in play? I think here we've crossed the line into preference. Is the Bible silent? preference, and is this simply a matter of personal application? Again, a preference. So you can see, the kind of the further you move down those questions, the further you move from it being an absolute. And so when I'm processing something, an issue, or a, a theological or an ethical issue, and there are many, that's kind of a paradigm or a series of questions that I ask myself. The challenge is just to be sure that emotionally we don't treat something as though it's more closely held than really what it should be. And at the same time, if it's a preference issue, Paul in Romans 14 says to the weaker brother and to the stronger brother, look, it's just food. As it relates to the weaker brother, he says it's just food. So he wants them to grow and, and, and relax and not be so constrained. But as it relates to the stronger brother, and this is what we're gonna see today, he also says to that person, look, it's just food. And therefore, if your brother is offended by it, and we'll define what exactly that means, you ought to be willing to give up your right to that food because it's just food. That's the point. So. What do we find here? We find here a second principle, and the second principle is this. The first one was welcome one another. The second one is this. Be considerate of one another's spiritual needs. In other words, the way in which you use your freedom, you always need to be thinking about the effects of the use of your freedom on someone else. Now, what Paul does in 13 through 23 is he basically repeats himself in this passage. So what I wanna do is show you what he's saying, address the issue of a stumbling block and what that means, and then give you some principles coming out of this text that, that are the foundation of this. So I'm gonna kinda do things reverse as the way I would normally do them. Usually I would show you the argument and then give you the conclusion. I'm gonna give you conclusion up front and then hope to prove it towards uh, the back end. So. Consider it of one another's needs. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So let's determine, he says, that we're not gonna judge, but let's decide, let's decide, same word as judge. Let's not judge, but instead let's make a firm commitment that we're not gonna put a stumbling block or a hindrance in someone else's way. And then skip ahead to verse 20. Paul uses a little stronger language here. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So Paul uses some pretty significant words here. In verse 13, he discourages actions that would be a stumbling block or a hindrance. In verse 20, he discourages behavior where it would destroy the work of God. And in verse 15, if you look at it, he uses the word grieved to describe the kind of conduct that should be avoided. In other words, if I'm a stronger brother and I feel like I've got freedom to do something, I can use that freedom, but I need to be careful that I don't use it in such a way that it either causes a stumbling block for someone, it destroys the work of God for someone, it causes them to be grieved, or becomes a hindrance, a significant spiritual hindrance in their relationship with Christ. What Paul is clear about here is this, that the meat, wine, and days issue is really not the top critical spiritual issue. Rather, how that issue is handled is the real ultimate issue. What Paul is going to do is to elevate for us the value of a brother or a sister even over our own freedoms. 
And so for the Christian, the principle is simply this. My right to exercise my liberty in Christ ends when it creates serious spiritual harm for another brother. Let me say that again. My right, your right to exercise my Christian liberty ends when it creates serious spiritual harm for a brother or sister. Now, if you're following with me, that immediately creates another question, and it's that, this. Okay, great, Mark, so what is serious spiritual harm? I'm glad you asked. What is a stumbling block? What is significant spiritual harm? It's important. It's an important question to ask because the limitation of freedom should not be done lightly. Christian liberty stops where the stumbling block begins. So what is the stumbling block? First, it applies to the weaker brother. And remember that in Romans 14 and 15, the weaker brother is someone who is young in faith, they are spiritually in need of strengthening, and they are fundamentally wrong on the issue. Paul says, the meat, the wine, the days, it's not an issue. And yet for that person, they're emotionally stuck in it. And so the stumbling block relates to something that factually really isn't an issue, but for this person it certainly is. Secondly, as we'll see in a moment, the weaker brother is then significantly harmed by the stumbling block. He's grieved. It says he's even destroyed. So the idea is this, it's an issue that's significant enough that would cause someone to either revert back to their former way of life, maybe they came out of a particular lifestyle and, and because you're in, they've been involved in this, it would tempt them or they would want to go back and it really might result in them going back or they could end up either rejecting the gospel in effect saying, look, I, I don't think I can be a Christian if this is how Christians um, conduct themselves or someone who has a very significant negative effect on their own spiritual life. So it's more than just someone disagreeing with you. It has to be more than someone just being a little offended or put off or a little uncomfortable. A stumbling block creates significant spiritual devastation for that particular brother. Third, What's also implied here is that there is a social pressure connected to whatever is happening. When we get to verse 22, we'll see that Paul says this, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. In other words, you may have freedom to do things between you and the Lord. In other words, in the privacy of your home, or when you're all by yourself, or with your family, you may be fully convinced that something is okay for you to do. And Paul in verse 22 says, and that's absolutely fine if you're fully convinced. As it relates to the brother, it's a social context where suddenly now this brother feels pressure to participate in, to do something that he or she is not necessarily comfortable with. So the stumbling block, therefore, is putting a brother or sister in a situation where they feel pressure, either direct or indirect, to violate their conscience. Let me give you an example. Imagine that the issue of meat was still in play. And imagine as a stronger brother and as a pastor, if I was like, look, meat's meat, and we'll just eat whatever we want, and we don't have any issue with it, and then, but I invite a, a new believer over to my house, and we have this person over for dinner, and they're still struggling with the meat issue, and I know that they're struggling with the meat issue, and so in order to try and help them get over the meat issue, what I do is I have them over for dinner, and I sort of surprise them with a big platter full of meat. 
And when they look at the meat, and they look at me, and I say, come on, it's just me. It's not that big of a deal. We're all going to eat, and our whole family's here. Let's not make an issue of it. Just eat. And at that moment, that brother is put in the position where he's got to decide like that in that setting with the pressure of what I think of him and the pressure of that social environment, and his conscience is turning. That's an unfair position for him to be in. That's not good for his soul. And I, as the stronger brother, ought to know better than to put him in that kind of position. That's the point. The idea is if he's going to grow in this issue, there should be another way for him to grow in it, not by me putting pressure, peer pressure, or social pressure on him to act in a way that violates his conscience. So I may have a meat party all by myself, and that's fine. But to put him in that situation is not helpful, wise, right, or loving. In that situation, what am I doing? I am elevating my freedom and trying to get him to convert, if you will, to my freedom and using a means that isn't appropriate. What's interesting is the meat isn't really even a sin issue in the first place, but how I'm handling it and what's going on in his soul, oh, those are sin issues, see? So Paul advises here for us to be careful. So what's a stumbling block? Here's my definition. A stumbling block is putting a brother under social pressure to do something that he or she feels is sinful. It's a situation where a brother's faith in the gospel or how that gospel is expressed in the church through relationships has the potential to be seriously harmed. And so what Paul is doing here is a bit of ethical and theological triage. By welcoming a brother, there are times when limiting one's freedoms would be morally right even when there is really a moral issue not in play. So if I've got a brother who's coming over for dinner and he has an issue with meat and I know that he does, then we ought to serve vegetables all day long and just say, hey kids, it's veggie night. And when they ask, why are we serving veggies? And the answer is, because the family that's coming over, for them, this is how we're gonna honor and serve and love them. And even though we could eat meat when they're not here, tonight we're just gonna eat veggies and we're gonna do it to the glory of God. And we can limit our freedom for one night to help this brother because that's the way that we're gonna show them the love of Christ. So that's the tone, that's the heart of what Paul intends to happen in this text. So hopefully that helps you understand what a stumbling block is. Hopefully you see that the principle is not just to welcome one another, but also that there are situations where limiting our freedom is not only appropriate, it's actually the moral thing to do. So, now let me give you five reasons from this text for limiting your freedom. What does Paul tell us here as to why we should act this way? The first is this. Verses 14 and 20 tell us that some ethical situations or some ethical issues are, in fact, situational. The first thing to consider related to ethics and morals is that there are times when ethics are appropriately situational. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul says, look, this this stuff is not unclean, but if you think it's unclean, it is unclean. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So there's two issues in play. The first is this, If you think it's unclean, then it is unclean, even if it isn't. 
And secondly, if you make somebody eat something that's unclean, even though it isn't, that's also wrong. So what Paul is doing here is identifying that there is a morality that's outside of these individual issues. And even though food, according to this text, is not fundamentally a moral issue, even though Paul is clearly sided with the fact that this food is in fact clean, what he says is it could be right for one person and wrong for another. And in that matter, how you handle it, it could actually be even more sinful than the issue itself. So some ethical situations are situational. In other words, what you do in the context of your home and what another person does in the context of their home, you could both equally be right. But the way in which you treat one another in the midst of that, oh, that's a really important matter and something you need to think and pray through. Don't relegate down um, this lack of situationalism to be that it can't be right for them and wrong for us. You gotta figure out how to reconcile those. There is a category within Christianity, there is a category within ethics and morality that is appropriately situational. And we'll see what that looks like even further. Secondly, the other reason to limit your freedom is that your freedom is less important than your brother's soul. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So Paul's elevating here. If he has to weigh out the value of this food issue versus the value of this brother's soul, he's clearly gonna side with the value of the brother's soul. So Paul sets the boundaries on freedom by establishing that there's something more valuable in play here than just the exercise of your freedoms. And what that thing is, is the spiritual health of a brother. Look at verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, he's saying look, all of these things are less important, your freedom is less important than causing a brother to stumble. Now again, the key is figuring out when is it a legitimate issue of causing someone to stumble, and when is it a non-legitimate issue? And even for that matter, figuring out the principles of when do we limit our freedoms just out of love for one another. Let me give you an example of this. I'll talk about this at the end, but the last church that I was in, in Holland, was a wonderful place, but they had come out of some legalism. They were on their way out of it, and I joined them as a very young pastor in the midst of some of their struggles. And there was one particular family who, in their understanding of what kind of real Christianity was, for them, um, if you were uh, really committed a follower of Jesus, for them what a woman wore was a, a marker. For that matter, she had to wear a dress. And so they were cons a very conservative couple. I was their pastor, I loved them, had to serve them. And so when they would invite us over to their house, my wife, out of love for them, would always wear a dress. And that was just part of the way that we loved and served them because we weren't gonna make it an issue as we were, when we were guests in their home. But then when she got home, she took that dress off and put on her sweatpants, right? I'm not gonna make her wear a dress you know, all throughout the day to clean the house and when someone comes up to the door and things of that sort. But when we go over to their house out of love for them, sure, I mean, that seems like the least that we can do because at the end of the day, this particular family and their, their needs were, were far greater than than this particular issue. So it really wasn't that big a deal. But I don't know some people who would look at that and go, oh, no way I'm not doing that. I'm gonna wear shorts, you know, and just, <laughs> just offend, right, just offend them, right? And why? Why do that? And so that's, now, is there a, is there a balance there? Sure there is. And you just figure it out. So, <laughs> third, 
Don't sacrifice the witness of the gospel. Verses 16 to 18. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. I think he's talking there about the gospel and your freedom that you have in Christ. Don't let what you have, this good freedom that you have in Jesus, don't let this be spoken of as evil. For, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, or put whatever you want. It's not a matter of all of these preferences, but the kingdom of God is of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And what Paul does here is remind us as to what's really important. He wants to remind us that the beauty of the gospel is at stake here. And for us to be careful, lest our families or our small groups or our Sunday school classes or our entire church is known in the community more for our views on preference issues than we're known for our commitment to the absolutes. And some of you had came out of churches where you saw this happen, where a church split, families divided, Sunday school classes got sideways over a particular secondary preferential issue, and uh, then they went their separate ways. And the reality is, what happens is that the name of that church, or that Sunday school class or that family in the community is stained for a long time as people were like, they divided over that? And what happens then is the gospel takes a back seat and the preferential issues take the front seat and everything gets distorted. And what Paul reminds us here is don't sacrifice the witness of the gospel. The kind of behavior that is acceptable to God and approved by men It's the kind of behavior that understands, look, we can agree to disagree and still love one another and still be part of what it means to be the body of Christ. Fourth, verse 19, we're to value unity. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You know what Paul says here? If you're passionate about freedom, wonderful. Just also be passionate about unity. And if you're passionate about unity, you also need to be passionate about freedom. A good, balanced follower of Jesus is passionate about two things at the same time. Passionate about freedom and passionate about unity. So as you pursue your freedom in Christ, you need to ask yourself this question. As it relates to my engagement with other people, will this create peace? Will this help them grow? Or will this create spiritual harm on other people? And as well, we need to work hard to think this way because in our Western American culture, which prizes individual liberties and rugged individualism, we are not inclined to first think about the effect on the whole we are more inclined to think about its implications to me. And now in Eastern cultures, there's a more emphasis on the whole, or the family, or the unit, or society. But in our culture, we think about individual rights. And so therefore, when you come to a text like this, or you come to the idea of Christian liberty, we have to work harder, I think, of taking our rights and taking our freedoms and realizing that we can't just exercise those freedoms or exercise those rights without considering its impact on other people. There is something bigger at stake than just the exercise of our individual freedoms. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Five, 
finally. Paul says, in the midst of all of this, you need to be mindful of the conscience. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So he says, look, there's a matter inside of you, conscience, and your conscience is between you and the Lord. So verse 22 says, and blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself and what he approves. So if you do something and you don't have any problem with it, Paul says, wonderful, there's, there's your conscience. And what he's identifying is that there's not only an external code of conduct, a list of things that you're not supposed to do in terms of morality given to us by the Bible, so uh, rules outside of ourselves, namely the word of God, but there are also all sorts of applications of that truth in our lives that the Bible doesn't directly speak to. So how do you navigate through things that are kind of in that gray area or things that the Bible doesn't directly speak to? And the answer that Paul gives is, well, you need to be guided by your conscience. And here's where things get a little messy because one person's conscience could think something is right where another person's conscience could think it's wrong. Verse 23, Paul then says this, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because that eating or the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, first of all, this conscience issue is a matter between you and God. So there needs to be some level of internal determination of what you should do or shouldn't do. So this, so part of the motivation or part of the standard for whether or not you should do something comes from the heart, it comes from your heart. So I can't decide for you things that you are, should do or shouldn't do. Now some things I can't, I can clearly tell you, you shouldn't do that, it's wrong, it's sinful. There's a host of other things that you gotta work it out. And so part of the reason that we study the word together is to build a Christian mindset so that when you encounter those things, you can pray it through and then decide, should I do this or should I not do this? It's a conscience issue. And then Paul goes on further and he says, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What he's saying is this, is that if peer pressure or social acceptance or some other motivation drives you to do what you do instead of faith in God, then that's actually potentially sinful. In other words, if you don't think, so what does God want me to do? You just think, what does my small group want me to do? What does my family want me to do? What do people around me want me to do? And that's what's motivating you to do certain things, even though somewhere in your mind you're like, I don't know if this is right. Or if you're like, I actually feel like this is wrong for me right now, then for you to do it and to be motivated by peer pressure and social acceptance and, and what other people think of you and to violate that conscience is actually to do something that's wrong even if fundamentally it's not wrong for somebody else to do it. See, the conscience then can become a great guide. It doesn't mean though that you are always 100% sure about everything that you do. Some of you are plagued with doubt or you feel guilty about things that you shouldn't. My encouragement to you would be this, that what you need to ask yourself is what's motivating me here and am I doing this as unto the Lord? Can I give thanks for this and am I doing this in faith? Paul has in mind here someone who feels like this is wrong and they do it anyways because of pressure from other people around them. He's elevating both the love of brother, and now he's elevating the importance of conscience and how we approach our liberties.
What Paul is doing here is ethical triage. He's showing us how unity, how love for the brother, how gospel witness, how a brother's conscience are more important to how we conduct ourselves than our actual liberties that we have in Christ. Even if your brother is wrong, you still have to think carefully about how you use your freedom and the effects of your actions on him or her. Now, there's two things that I want you to take away from this text. The first is this, there are real and actual stumbling block issues that you need to think about and realize that for you to do that and violate that brother's conscience, that would be not only sin, but that would be potentially destructive. You need to think about those scenarios. But there's another situation, and it's this, where just in terms of principles and how we think about the exercise of our liberty and our freedoms, we need to have other people in mind and to realize that just because we have the freedom to do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should necessarily do it. We have to think through the context, the situation, and the circumstances out of love for one another. A Couple pastoral thoughts. What this text does is help us to see our freedoms and our preferences through a lens of the gospel and a lens of love for one another. My encouragement to you would be this. Do not use your freedom as a weapon of shame. Meaning, don't flaunt your freedom to somebody who you hang out with, and I'm free to do this, and I don't care if you're not free or not, I'm just gonna do it because I'm free. And people flaunt their freedoms as if it has no effect on other people. In fact, they know it has an effect on people. They just like to flaunt their freedom. And I would tell you, that kind of use of freedom, that you may be free to do it, but the way you're doing it, that's wrong. On the other hand, don't use the restrictions of your freedom as a means to make people feel guilty when they shouldn't. If you're just not free to do certain things, don't pitch it as though somehow you're more spiritual. Don't pitch it as though somehow you're more godly than everybody, everyone else. Instead, see that you have this particular way of doing things or way of not doing things, and don't use that as a weapon of needless guilt. Finally, remember that the effects of others on others in terms of our decision making is always a part of what needs to go into that process as we pray through, should I do this and should we do this together? It always needs to be a part of the process of evaluating our behaviors and sometimes even modifying our actions. What you do privately is between you and the Lord, but what you do socially and with others is different because listen to me, your freedom is not just about you. That's the point. And sometimes, there are legitimate scenarios when in interest of the greater good of the body of Christ, you need to limit your freedoms. Let me give you an illustration of this from my own life. In 1996, I became the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Holland. And at that time, I was very young, and the church was in the process of coming out, as I said before, of a tradition of some pretty conservative stuff. Not the least of which, about two pastors earlier, they had been instructed that there's really only one translation of the Bible that you should use, and that was the King James Bible. 
And they had people who had come in and taught them that. They believed that it was the preserved word for the English language. In fact, so much so, there's a couple people in the church actually believe that if you weren't saved hearing a King James Bible, then you may not really have even been saved. Now, that, I mean, some of that stuff was just crazy ridiculous, right? And yet, when I became the pastor there, I was using New American Standard in, in uh, youth ministry. And I, it was an issue, and it was gonna be a big issue. And I knew that if I pushed the New American Standard Bible, too strongly, the church would have split, would have divided, people would have been hurt, other churches in the community would have um, um, identified us as a liberal church, and so it was all of these issues. And so as I was praying through becoming the senior pastor of that church, I knew that this issue was gonna be front and center, and I determined after studying Romans 14 and Romans 15 that it was time to shelve my New American Standard. In 1996, I pulled out my King James Bible and began using that and I used it for the next eight years at that church. I gotta tell you, when I had a friend come in from seminary and they heard me teach or they asked me what I was using, I said, yeah, I'm using the King James. They're like, what are you doing? You know, it's like 1611? <laughs> and, and there was times that was, I had to really kind of swallow hard and go, I know, but you gotta understand, I love my people more than I hate where they're at. And we had a lot of other issues we had to deal with, and they gave me a gift of being a senior pastor at age 26. I mean, who am I to create this huge problem? And so slowly over time, we began just helping them to understand the Bible, and in 2006, we moved from King James to New King James without a hitch, without a problem, without any issue whatsoever. <laughs> and you laugh, and you think that's a small deal. It's a huge deal. And then when I left in uh, 2008, as a as a gift to me, they gave me this Bible that I've used since day one here, and they said to me when they handed it to me, teach the people of College Park the way that you've taught us, and here's a Bible, and by the way, it's an ESV. <laughs> 10 years earlier, would have split the church right down the middle, and yet I think that the right decision was to limit my rights in order to help them grow, and next weekend, I won't be here, I'm gonna be there celebrating their 50th anniversary of how God's done his work of grace in their church. I share all that with you just to show you at least one small example where I think it's appropriate to keep the bigger picture in mind and to say, you know what? It's just a translation. It's just the word thee or thou. It's just a little old and you know what? We can deal with it in order to hit the target in terms of what Jesus called us to be and do, which is, look, we wanna be the kind of people who live in unity despite all of our differences and choose to love one another, be able to agree in the midst of all of our disagreements that we're gonna cherish and love Jesus more than how much different we are from one another. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the kind of people who know how to balance essentials and non-essentials, how to balance liberty and um, our freedom. Forgive us when we get emotionally overly committed to our things. We get so filled with guilt and fear of man that we can't even think straight. We want our church to be a body who welcomes one another and are unified. And we long to be the kind of people who not only live in freedom, but live in great amounts of love. So give us wisdom. 
and how we engage with one another. And forgive us for times when we've made our freedoms too big of a deal. And forgive us for times when we've made our lack of a freedom too big deal. And College Park, while we just end, I wanna give you a moment just to talk to the Lord. What's going on inside of your soul? What tensions do you feel today? What, what issues do you feel the Lord's speaking to you about in this regard? I'm just gonna give you some moments for silent reflection and prayer, and then when you hear the music begin, you can be dismissed. Let's just ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you're saying to me today about this passage?